0: Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode 1.11, The Fall of an Empire. It's 323 BC, Babylon. Alexander the Great's empire extends from Greece, to Turkey, to Syria, to Iran, to Egypt, to Afghanistan. The Great Emperor has lived the life hard and fast of a warrior king. But now he lies dying. And before the year is out, his empire will be dissolved, torn between the squabbling warlords who were once his proud generals. It's 210 BC, China. The great Qin emperor has ended the warring states period by unifying China into one political entity, He has lived the life of an enforcer of unity, placing his people under iron laws and extracting huge amounts of tax. But now he lies dying. And eight years after he's been put in his tomb and surrounded by his terracotta army, the empire will be dissolved, all its power and awe fritted away by his wastrel son. It's 232 BC India. The Emperor Ashoka the Great has brought together almost the whole of India under the Mauryan Empire. He has lived the life of virtue, advocating pacifism, religious tolerance and respect. But now he lies dying, with nothing left to his fortune but half an umla fruit. And 53 years after he has died, the empire will be dissolved, his last successor murdered by his own general. There's a sour accusation often levelled against Ashoka, that the empire collapsed so soon after his death because of his pursuit of virtue, because he prioritised doing good rather than being a strong ruler. This episode, we explore that idea. First, we look at the grisly fate of Ashoka's crown prince. Second, we look at some of the Mauryan Empire's emperors who inherited the empire from him. And finally, we look at the sour accusation itself. Exactly why did the Mauryan Empire collapse? Unsurprising sneak preview. I don't think it's because he was a good man. Throughout most of Ashoka's reign, his presumptive heir was a son called Kunala. Kunala was named after a certain Himalayan bird, which has got this beautiful white teardrop shape around his eyes. It kind of highlights the eyes, make them, makes them pop out, makes them seem iridescent. Uh, it's, it's like the sort of, the most extreme makeup job ever. Though of course, being birds rather than humans, they managed to pull it off somehow. Anyway, it's said that Kunala, when he was born, had the most beautiful eyes himself, and that's how he got the name. Kunala was a good-looking young man. Not only did he have these beautiful eyes, he also had a, a lovely, very distinctive singing voice. But beauty always comes with trouble, they say, and the same was true of Kunala, because a sage just after he was born prophesied that Kunala would lose those beautiful eyes. Anyway, Kunala's mother was one of Ashoka's queens. She wasn't His first love, that was Devi. Nor was she the chief chief queen. She was just one amongst a whole range of queens. But Ashoka loved the boy. He loved Kunala. Perhaps Ashoka thought back to his own father's dislike for his own ugliness. Or perhaps Kunala was just a very competent, very charming young man. Ashoka gave Kunala a very important job. He made him Viceroy at Taxila. Taxila, remember, was the city of the scholars up in the northwest and was in charge of Gandhara, which is a large chunk of the empire. But this is an important posting. The viceroyship controlled the Punjab and much of Afghanistan and more besides. It was also an especially difficult posting. There are plenty of Greeks still up in that area. And they had different cultural understandings, a different framework than those of Indian descent making it a minefield of potential political misunderstandings. And in addition to the Greek influence, there were still plenty of hangovers from when the Persians had ruled the region. The official language was Aramaic, not the Magdi that Kunala probably grew up with. And the administrative structure was different from the stuff Kanala would have been used to too. It was based on the Persian system, not on the system that had been instituted by the Magdan kings. So this was a furnace of rebellion and political minds. This was the place where Ashoka, as a young man, had proven himself to his father. He had gone there to put down a revolt and he had had great success there. So naturally, this was the place that Ashoka sent his own favourite son to prove himself. There are even some sources which claim that Kunala was sent to put down a revolt, just like Ashoka was, but that seems rather dubious. Anyway, when Kunala was in Taxila, the chief queen died. Ashoka had loved this queen, and maybe everybody did. She certainly seemed to have been well on board with Ashoka's whole Dharma, be virtuous, help the people deal. Well, she died and the king mourned her for four years. And after that, he married another younger queen and took her on as the chief queen. The new queen's name was Tisaraka, and she was trouble. For one thing, she wasn't a Buddhist, and this put the Buddhist chroniclers in a bad mood with her already. For another, she tried to poison the Bodhi tree, that's the tree where the Buddha had been become enlightened. We heard about that in an earlier podcast. But she also caused trouble for Kunala. Tisaraka was probably quite young, and Kunala was a dashing young man, and she took a fancy to him. And she even... Went so far as to make some advances, try and get some sort of relationship going illicitly. But Kunala rejected her. And that seems fair enough, after all, she was his stepmum. But Tisaraka didn't see it this way. She was really, really pissed off, so she hatched a plan. She started to put small little doses of poison in the king's food. Not, not enough to kill him, but enough to make him seriously ill. And seriously ill, the king became. So he announced a prize for anybody who could cure him. Well, no problem for Tissaraka. All she has to do is stop the poisoning. So she goes and says, I'll cure you. And she does whatever mumbo-jumbo, mystical, magical spell sort of thing comes to mind, whilst also stopping the poison. And sure enough, the king gets better and thinks, I'm cured. And so he offers her the prize. She, he offered her, look, you can take anything you want amongst all of my treasures. You've saved my life. Tissaraka had already worked out what she wanted. She asked for the emperor's seal. And the emperor gave it to her. After all, a promise is a promise. So Tissaraka took the seal. He went, she went back to her rooms and she composed a letter. And she sealed it up with the emperor's seal and sent it off with a messenger. And the messenger took the message and headed out of the city, out of Pataliputra, on the road to Taxila. And went all the way. And when he arrived in Taxila, he found the Mahamatra. And he handed him the letter. And the Mahamatra opened it and read it. It was orders, apparently from the king. The crown prince Kunala was to be dealt with. He was to be put to death. But Tissaraka had been spiteful and had added, pretending to be the emperor, that before he died, Kunala's bewitching, sexy eyes must be plucked out. Well, the Mahamatra who read this was pretty distraught. Kunala was a good viceroy, he did a good job, and the Mahamatra kind of liked the kid. But the emperor's seal was on the letter. It was an order, so it has to have been obeyed. And it was obeyed. He went to have Kunala arrested. And then he went to watch as Kunala's eyes were plucked out. And it was done. But then the Mahamatra had a change of heart. He'd had enough. He couldn't stand to see his prince suffering in this way. So he let him go out into the countryside on a condition he wouldn't tell anyone that he had survived or who he was. So Kunala, the once crown prince, is now a blinded, wandering vagrant. He escapes, His, his wife goes with him and guides him along the way. And he flees the city of Taxila and wanders around in the countryside out there. The two of them live together, his wife leading him by the hand. And they made their living as wandering musicians, with Kunala singing the songs in that beautiful, distinctive voice of his. And they wandered east, scratching a living. Many months later, they came to the walls of the great capital, Pataliputra itself. And there, outside the walls, they did their usual thing. Kunala sang for money just to get enough food to get by. But Ashoka happened to be in the city at that time. And as he was working in his palace, he heard this beautiful voice wafting across the air towards him. And he recognised it instantly. And he realised that's the voice of my beloved lost son. And he rushed out of the palace to go and find him and bring him in. And he sat him down and he said, what happened? And he quickly had got to the bottom of it, quickly worked out that his queen had poisoned him, tried to fake this illness and then sent off this wicked letter, all in revenge at being spurned. So Ashoka finds his police, sends them out to arrest the queen and has her burnt alive. That's a wonderful story. It's actually from the same source as the legends we heard last week. Uh, I called one of those legends disgusting, rather rashly. I probably shouldn't have. This is kind of a little bit gross, but it's it's a really great story. It's not clear how much truth there is in it, of course. Some of it just doesn't seem to make that much sense. I mean, What did Ashoka think had happened to his favourite son whilst he was spending those months wandering around the country as a minstrel? And why didn't the Mahamatra speak up when Ashoka came, uh, saying, what's happened to my son? And anyway, according to quite a few sources, Kunala actually ruled the empire after Ashoka, and presumably he didn't do it without any eyes. According to another source, Ashoka was so pleased at how Kunala was running the empire from Taxila that he ordered the empire to be split and the whole uh, western section of the empire to be given to Kunala. Or maybe the eastern. Sources are unclear. So the story, probably not true, but it's the last really neat story we get about the Mauryas and I wanted to share it with you. What happened to the Mauryan Empire? after Ashoka died? Well, it's unclear. For the past three podcasts, we've been living in the lap of ancient historical luxury. We've had Ashoka's own words, we've had Greek sources, we've had lots of legends to appeal to. After Ashoka dies, there's none of that. Pretty much our only evidence are the lists of kings. And there are lots of different lists of kings, and all of them have different names on them. In fact, very rarely does the same name appear on more than one list. So there are loads and loads of names connected with the later Mauryan emperors. I lost count at around 17 when I tried to count. And we know almost nothing about almost all of these names. Just the name and the number of years they're supposed to have ruled. Some things are pretty certain. We know how the line of the Morian emperors ended badly, more on that later, and we know that the later Morians ruled for about 53 years after Ashoka's death. That's far too few for all the kings mentioned in all the lists who have ruled one after the other, although perhaps they're different names for the same kings. The lists have different numbers of kings, so that still wouldn't solve all our problems. The other alternative is that the empire was split into several different parts and the different lists are lists of kings in different parts of the empire and they're ruling simultaneously. There's some independent evidence for the splitting of the empire, but not much. So it's a huge, hopelessly entangled web of confusion. We are going to have a firm policy of not bothering to try to sort it out. Ancient history is mostly an educated guessing game, but sometimes you just have to admit that you haven't even got enough information to make a guess. So we're not going to try and sort out the order of the emperors after Ashoka or what happened precisely. Instead, we're going to mention a few kings, mostly because they're the ones we know more than just the name and the date. But even these kings we have very dwindling evidence for, nothing like the wealth of evidence we have for Ashoka. But let's give it a go and see if we can get to know them a little bit. King number one. Emperor Dasharata. This is Ashoka's grandson. He inherits the empire when he is about 20 years old. It's not altogether clear whether that was Ashoka's plan all along or this is the ministers pulling a fast one again. But Dasharata rules the empire from the heartland, from Pataliputra itself. He may well have lost the east of the empire. He definitely controls the heartlands around Pataliputra though. And we know this because uh, some 80 kilometres south of Pataliputra, up in the hills, there are some caves. They're still there. South of Patna. And these caves are from the Mauryan era. There's an absolutely beautifully carved entrance to one of the caves. It's called the Lornas Rishi Cave. Uh, It's carved with an arch just as if it were a building and there's elephants in the arch and it, it's just wonderful. Although the cave inside, if you go inside, actually the, the cave is incomplete because they found a fault in the rock. Uh, and that must have been very, very annoying. Anyway, next door to the Lorna's Rishi cave, there's a, a cave which Ashoka had carved. And it's got a very simple entrance and inside... It's beautifully simple, right? The roof is carved in an elegant, simple arch. There's almost no adornment. At the end is a door leading to a smaller chamber for meditating. It's broad and it's beautiful in its simplicity. But go away from these two obvious caves, some way further down the road that winds around, and you'll find some other caves. Two of these carry inscriptions. They're partly carved away, But there's enough there so we know who carved them. These two caves are the last physical remnant of the life of Dasharata, Emperor of Moria. He had the caves carved and he had donated them to the Ajivika sect, which is one of those three main sects, Buddhism, Jainism, Ajivikism. And that's it. After all the inscriptions, All the art, all the artefacts left by Ashoka, and all the legends told about him. These two little caves are the sole remnant of his inheritor, Dasharata. We know nothing else about him. He rules for seven years, and then he disappears from the historical record altogether, presumably dead. We don't know how, and we don't know why. Sometime around this period, the empire is starting to crumble, And the edges are starting to fall off. Kalinga in the east, that's the place that Ashoka had conquered and then had his conversion. Kalinga, the Kalingas are lost from the empire. And part of the south of the empire is lost too. So that's Ashoka's inheritor number one. Here's number two. Sampati, another grandson of Ashoka. He was probably the son of Kunala the crown prince who lost his eyes. Sampati seems to have ruled in the west where Kunala had been viceroy and had his power base and it might have been that this was the division of the empire with Sampati ruling the west and ruling Dasharata ruling the east. That might be the truth behind the story about Ashoka being so impressed with Kunala's rule in Taxila that he split the empire although other sources have Sampati ruling from Pataliputra and also from Ujjain, which is in the centre of India, to the south of the capital. Anyway, Sampati had a devout temperament, a sacrificial temperament, devoted to his sect, much like his grandfather Ashoka, except that where his grandfather Ashoka had been a Buddhist, Sampati was a Jain. So where Ashoka donated loads of things to Buddhists, and also to other sects too but mostly to buddhists sampati donated to jains and where ashoka sent buddhist missionaries to foreign lands sampati sent jain missionaries to south india to be precise right? ashoka had sent his missionaries further in particular to sri lanka sampati probably couldn't do that because he simply didn't have as much clout on the world stage that's the second descendant of ashoka to rule here's the third Jalauka. He's Ashoka's son, so he's uncle to Sampati and Dasharata, and he's said to have ruled the northeast of the old empire, Kashmir and perhaps Gandhara too. There's a funny story about his birth. It's quite a late story, about 12th century AD. But the story goes that Ashoka wanted to kill all the foreigners, all those filthy mlechers. And this probably refers to the Bactrian Greeks. So Ashoka prayed for a son to be a weapon in his hand to get uh, the country rid of these foreigners. And the son was duly born and it was Jalauka. And Jalauka was a terror to his foes. But he wasn't quite what Ashoka had prayed for. Because Jalauka wasn't a Buddhist. Instead he was a devout follower of Shiva. So Jalauka naturally enough attacked the Buddhists. And that's probably not what Ashoka had in mind. But anyway, after he had given them a good kicking, he got around to attacking the Greeks, and he threw them out of India, and then he ruled the whole world, right up until the Great Ocean, and set up a new administration system to govern the whole thing. Yeah. Or maybe not. But the truth of the story is that the Greeks were back in the offing, now the Mauryan Empire was crumbling. The Bactrians on the northwest border of the Mauryan Empire. In Ashoka's day, they were part of the Seleucid lands, that great empire that was the remnant of Alexander's empire in the east. But sometime after Ashoka's death, the Bactrians revolted against their Seleucid masters. And in particular, they revolted against Antiochus the Great, who was in charge of the Seleucid Empire at that point. And their revolt. Prickles Antiochus in the wrong way. So Antiochus gathers a huge army and he marches it up to Bactria and he beats them, pounds them into submission. Top tip, don't go revolting against anyone with the epithet Great, Antiochus the Great. They wouldn't be called that if you managed to beat them. Anyway, whilst Antiochus the Great was in the area, he had dealings with the Mauryan kings He deals with a king in fact altogether unknown to ancient Indian records, and extracts from him a sizeable tribute, 150 elephants with some treasure on top, oh and Kandahar too. By the way, with the return of Seleucid power to the area, we also have the coming of a chap called Aristophanes. Now to be honest, that's of no significance to Indian history, but it gives me excuse to talk about one of my favourite experiments. See, Aristophanes was a geographer and a general clever man based in the library of Alexandria, the famous one. And he went travelling around, and he reached as far as Bactria and even India. Anyway, Aristophanes is responsible for finding the circumference of the earth. And he did it by experiment, and it's a really simple experiment. He assumes that the earth is spherical, as did pretty much everyone else. Yes, that's right. Humans have pretty much always known that the Earth is spherical. In fact, we get explicit recognition from Megasthenes that the Indians in the Mauryan era also knew that the world was round. The idea that people ever really thought the world was flat is just wrong. It seems to be a myth propagated in the Victorian era, and I sometimes wonder whether it's just there so that we can sneer at our ancestors. Anyway, I digress. Aristophanes comes along, assuming the Earth is spherical, and he says, I can calculate the circumference for you. So, This is how to find the circumference of the Earth using ancient technology, Aristophanes style. You will need two people, two sticks, two rulers, and a really, really, really long measuring tape. So the first thing to do is find two places, two cities, you know, the distance between. Use the long measuring tape for that. Say it's Pataliputra and Ujjain. Then you place the the stick of the same length in both cities. And then at a certain time of day, you measure the length of the shadow of the stick. That gives you the angle of the sun at both cities, assuming the sun is far enough away that the light travels effectively from it in parallel lines but Aristophanes knew the Sun was a long, long way away. Given the distance of the two shadows and the height, from this, combined with a bit of GCSE mathematics, you can calculate the distance between the cities as a proportion of the circumference of the whole Earth. And since you know the distance between the cities, this lets you calculate the circumference of the Earth. I'll let you work out the GCSE maths. It's hard to explain without a paper and pen. Anyway, Aristophanes did the experiment and did the sums, and he was pretty damn good. He got the circumference of the earth within 2%. And that's not bad. In fact, that's the reason why, centuries later, people tried to persuade Columbus not to find a western passage to India, not to sail over the Atlantic and try to get to India. It wasn't because they thought the earth was flat and he'd fall off the edge, that would be silly. It's because they thought that the circumference of the Earth was a certain size. They knew from Aristophanes that the circumference of the Earth was so big that Columbus would never make it to India before he'd run out of water. And they were right. Columbus just got lucky that he found America. OK, um, we've landed up in the West Indies almost two millennia past the date we're supposed to be talking about. We got off point. Where were we? Ah, the last of Ashoka's descendants to inherit the throne was Brihadrata. Brihadrata actually he's not really the last of the Mauryans because there are petty Mauryan kings in centuries after this. Uh, but that's a bit like saying there are em- Roman emperors in the 20th century. Brihadrata was definitely the last of the dynasty, the last to inherit Chandragupta's empire the empire he inherited had collapsed back to its original size. The Kalingas had been lost, the south had been lost, the northwest had been lost, then the north had been lost. All Brihadrata was left with was a territory about the size of the original Magadha. This was the land, the territory of Bimbisara and Ajatashatru, the territory that we started this podcast series with. Well, Brihadrata was an unfortunate fellow He was known for two things, and neither of them are good. First, he was known for being a bit dim. Second, he was known for being assassinated. And those two things, as you'd imagine, are intimately associated. One day, his commander organised a nice military parade for him, and said, come along, my king, and watch all the army. And he duly came along and watched the army. Uh, by the way, the Sanskrit for commander is Senapati, which literally means army lord or army king, which I think is rather cooler than the rather school marmy commander in English. Anyway, the king came along to see his army, and presumably while the king was occupied watching his loyal troops, the Senapati creeped up behind him and took his head. This was a palace coup, and palace coups only really happen when the ministers and the people really hate the king. So, Pruhadrata, probably a bad king. The commander was called Mushyamitra Shunga, and he would go on to found the new Shunga dynasty of emperors, based in Pataliputra and ruling much of India. Uh, By the way, I wouldn't necessarily Google Shunga. I made that mistake once uh, and found out it's also the name of a certain sort of Japanese erotic art caution advised. About the real Shunga dynasty, there are many stories and there's much intrigue and there's lots to tell, but those stories are for another podcast. Indeed, they're for another series of podcast episodes. For now, the Mauryan dynasty has come to close and it's time to evaluate things. Within 53 years of Ashoka's death, the great empire he had inherited and built up had disappeared, vanished. Why? The great accusation which you will read time and time again, especially in the more casual history books, is that Ashoka's pursuit of Dharma, virtue, that was the thing that led to the sudden disappearance of the empire. For the rest of the episode, I'm going to pontificate about that accusation, and why I think it's unpersuasive. Now, I've got no special insights here. I'm not an academic historian. I'm in no place to get all polemical about this. But it, it's sometimes good not to know your place, so I'm going to get polemical anyway. Besides, we're at the end of the Mauryan era, and I thought it would be interesting to give a no-holds-barred, opinionated assessment of their legacy. So if you find that sort of stuff annoying, then please skip the rest of the podcast. Thanks for listening, see you on the other side. On the other hand, if you find polemics entertaining or interesting, then listen on. The best case that can be made for the accusation that Ashoka's pursuit of virtue led to the fall of the Empire is twofold. First, Ashoka refused to make any more conquests after he conquered the Kalingas and he asked his inheritors to do the same. So Ashoka pursued ahimsa, non-injury to others, and that pacifism may have depleted the army over time, reducing their ability to threaten and fight revolts and to fend off foreign invaders. Second, Ashoka's unconventional ways and focus on virtue may have led to questionable administrative decisions. The idea here is that he was distracted from being a good ruler by his overwhelming desire to be a good man. The best examples of these are the giving away of the treasury to the Buddhist monasteries at the end of his life, and the bowing to the Varna Buddhist monks. If the stories are true, then both these acts were considered imprudent by Ashoka's seasoned advisers. Just to get a flavour of this accusation that Dharma was the cause of the downfall of the empire, Here's a quote from a really fun and interesting book by Paddy Doherty, called The Khyber Pass. Doherty makes the accusation in a stunningly evocative way. He's discussing the Mauryan Empire and why it fell, and he writes, Hindu resistance to Dharma was one cause of the deterioration of Mauryan rule. Another was the enervating effect of Buddhism itself. Princes schooled in otherworldliness, in a concern for dharma and the freeing of oneself from the ego, made bad rulers. The business of government is practical, deeply worldly and often violent, inimical to the Buddhist withdrawal from the harsh realities of life. The neglect of things military that followed from practising Buddhist pacifism and an inattention to daily governance provided only for a royal line that ended in failure. Doherty goes on to describe Ashoka's remorse about the massacre at Kalinga as indulgent and pious self-satisfaction in turning his attention to his own ideas of salvation. Doherty writes, Through being skilled in the art of war, Chandragupta had turned himself from an ordinary citizen, though one possessed of unusual talent, into a king. Ashoka had thought more of his own deliverance and, neglecting the art of war, had caused his family to lose the kingdom he had inherited. Pacifism secures few thrones. Ouch. A lot is at stake, I think, in whether Doherty's accusations are true. This is bigger than even the Mauryan Empire. It matters more. Put crudely, it's a struggle between two views. And the first view, I'm going to call the naive view. It makes the pretty obvious claim that you ought to be an effective ruler by trying to do what is effective. Prioritise making the right decision above moral scruples, and that will ensure that you get the job done. And under almost all human circumstances, making the right decision to be effective requires being ruthless. The business of governing humans in the real world means that if you try to effectively do it, you're going to need to manipulate people, to cajole them, to threaten, to betray them, to steal, to outright lie and maybe even to kill. Most famously, Machiavelli, Renaissance writer, subscribed to the naive view when he said, Politics have no relation to morals and a wise ruler ought never to keep faith when by doing so it would be against his interest. Thucydides also appealed to this view, the ancient Greek historian. And in our day, political realists almost always subscribe to the naive view. In fact, pick up any of those leadership self-help books on how to be a great leader at work or anything, and you'll find the same message. Strive to rule efficiently. Put efficiency and ruling well above everything else, including morals, and then you'll succeed. Pretty clearly, Paddy Paddy Doherty from that quote... uh, about a shoker above subscribes to something like this view. So that's the naive view that you've got to rule efficiently, put that first, and put morality second, and it turns out you're going to be ruthless. The second view I'm going to call the radical view. It's radical, but it also has the handicap of being the traditional view. And its traditional preeminence might cause us to overlook quite how radical it is. This is the view that to be an effective ruler, you must not in the first instance try to be one. If you want to be effective, don't try to be effective. Instead, do something quite different. Try to be a good man or woman. On this view, there's a world of difference between being effective and trying to be effective. On this view, ruling a state is rather like going to sleep. Right? If you try really hard to go to sleep, you're not going to be very good at it. The only way you really get to sleep is when you stop trying to go to sleep and you relax. And then you're sleeping. According to this radical view, it's the same thing with, with running a state. Try to be good and the statesmanship will follow. This view was taken by the supporters of Ashoka and they said, He made men more pious and everything thrives throughout the whole world. And Ashoka clearly subscribed to the radical view himself and he says as much in his edicts. But the ideal is even older than that. It's the ancient Hindu ideal of kingship. Even the, the, the Gita is based on it, though it's got quite a different idea of virtue. And you can find it in the other great texts too. Just to take the best known, the Old Testament proverbs include, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked, wicked rule, the people groan. The idea is you have to be a good person to be a good ruler, to put it in a slogan. See how quite how radical the radical view is. Imagine using this theory, the radical theory, to vote for your prime minister or your president or whatever. Then suppose one of the candidates is very enthusiastic to make the country a better place. That's actually going to count against them because they want to rule efficiently. What you need to do is find someone who doesn't really want to rule but who's a good person. In short... This theory would require voting for the candidate who least wants what you want, effective rulership. I'm not really sure which of the two views is right, the traditional view or the radical view. One day I'll be entirely persuaded by the radical view and the next I'll be entirely persuaded by the naive view. Don't take from the names that I've given them, that radical and naive, that um, only the radical view can be right. The naive view has in its favour, a sort of charming simplicity. And often enough, you know, the the obvious answer is the right one. Clever minds can overthink what the simple mind gets quite right. And the radical view seems somewhat naive and fanciful to me at times. Indeed, it can seem downright dangerous and morbid, to be obsessed with keeping your hands clean when there's serious work to be done. But very smart people have held the radical view... So at the very least, it's a serious question, which of the two views is right. Surely everyone interested in state justice will want a serious and honest attempt at answering it. And our best, maybe our only guide to answering this key question is history. And Ashoka is one of our best test cases from history. On the one hand, if his seeking virtue first, if his trying to be a good person first, caused the empire to fall, then this is evidence that the naive view is right. On the other hand, if the empire fell despite his seeking virtue rather than because of it, then this is evidence that the radical view is right, or at least not evidence in favour of the naive view. It's quite obvious what will not be an acceptable honest test of the claim that Ashoka's empire fell because he was virtuous. What we must not do is simply say that Ashoka was virtuous and then the empire fell. So one must have caused the other. No good. Correlation is not causation. Besides, we know that the empires of other great men also fell. But those men were less virtuous. Alexander and uh, the Qin Emperor, we talked about at the very beginning of the podcast. And those empires fell more suddenly too. Ashoka's empire might have fallen for the same reasons as those other empires, and not because of his pursuit of virtue so we're going to need some better evidence. The difficulty for those who want to use Ashoka's case to support the naive view is that there simply is no evidence. There's no indication in the ancient sources that the empire fell because of his virtue. The idea isn't even mooted as far as I can find. For instance, there's no evidence that the army was weakened during Ashoka's reign other than the rather unsurprising fact that Ashoka doesn't mention his army in any of the edicts. Indeed, Ashoka is clear that he still has military power sufficient to overwhelm the forest kingdoms if need be. A doctrine of Ahimsa, Ahimsa, non-violence, didn't keep him from killing people, from burning people alive, or from threatening to destroy the forest kingdoms, and backing that threat up with credible power. And his army had sufficient power to keep the Greeks in the northwest at bay until decades after his death. And we know there were plenty of districts in his country, in his empire, that were ruled from forts, so we can imagine the military had a significant presence and more or less owned certain districts. There's also no evidence that Ashoka was the was such a kind person that his people felt able to rebel and resist without expecting any punishment, with impunity. Indeed, Ashoka kept a very severe system of punishment, and it seems to have been the same system of punishment as used by his ruthless grandfather. Ashoka keeps killing people for crimes, and as I said, perhaps even burning his wife to death for the crime of murder. And he keeps imprisoning enough people to make it possible to make pardons every year. What's more, towards the end of his reign, the load of criminal cases before his judges seems to have become so large that he empowered lower-down officials, the Rajukas, to also make judgments. So clearly this is a criminal justice system hard at work, not being lapsed on the people. The picture is a picture of strict discipline, being imposed on the people, written into the law of the land. It's not a happy-go-lucky rulership which might leave a lot of space for revolts. So there's simply not much evidence for the claim that Ashoka's being virtuous led to the downfall of the empire. So what did cause the sudden fall of the Mauryan empire. Another popular theory, mentioned at the start of that quote from Doherty, was that Ashoka's promotion of Buddhism offended the supporters of Brahminical tradition enough for them to revolt and overthrow the empire. Ashoka's Buddhism, just, other people found that too insulting and they wanted to get rid of his empire, obliterated entirely. This is a better theory. There's some slender evidence for this. Ashoka did require respect for Brahmins. He wanted the people to respect Brahmins. Uh, and even the parts of his laws which outlawed Brahminical rites, which outlawed sacrifice of animals, can be seen as in line with Brahminical theory and practice around the time that Ashoka lives. So Ashoka teaches the Brahmins as worthy of respect he kind of treats them as worthy of just as much respect as buddhist monks and the holy men of other sects and that's a significant step down for the brahmins where before a brahmin could expect a less severe punishment than someone from a lower varna, now they're treated equally in the law courts this is still pretty slender stuff to base the downfall of an empire on and there's the slight embarrassment here that None of the Brahminical sources have even the ghost of a mention of a Brahminical uprising against the Mauryans, though they're quick to highlight rising support from Brahminical tradition in other areas and other cases. There are plenty of other explanations available. Alexander had a great empire which collapsed quickly after his death and clearly not because he pursued virtue in the way that Ashokas did. Alexander's empire fell perhaps because he had constructed it in a way in which its unity depended on him as an individual. And when he died, nobody could fill his shoes. Well, maybe the same is true of the Mauryan Empire. Maybe we have Ashoka constructing his empire on his own personality. And so when Ashoka dies, um, his empire dies and fades with him. The great Qin Emperor uh, had an empire which collapsed very quickly after his death. And he definitely wasn't a virtuous man, quite the contrary. So his empire fell for a different reason. Plausibly, the Qin empire collapsed because there was no good succession plan in place. His ministers took control from the royal family, placing a weak descendant on the throne. Um, And that descendant just screwed things up. The same might very plausibly be true of the Mauryan empire where we have independent evidence that Ashoka's ministers may have taken control at his death and seem to be using his grandsons as pawns for their own political ambitions. So there are a bunch of explanations on offer. I'm not sure which of these explanations, if any, are right. That requires a book. It would be a book worth writing. What I am sure is, unless you start out with the naive Machiavellian faith, that pursuing virtue is necessarily an obstacle to efficient rule, these explanations I've just mentioned have much more evidence in their favour than the accusation that the Empire fell because Ashoka was distracted by being a good man. The final word goes to Ashoka. This is what he had inscribed in Kandahar. I'll put a picture up on the website. Ten years having been completed, King Piodasus, that's Ashoka, made known piety to men. And from this moment he has made men more pious, and everything thrives throughout the whole world. And the king abstains from killing living beings, and other men, those huntsmen and fishermen of the king, have desisted from hunting. And if some were intemperate, they have ceased from their intemperance, as was in their power, and become obedient to their father and mother and to the elders in opposition to the past. By so acting on every occasion, they will live better and they will live more happily. Wow, we've reached it. The end of the line of the Morias. It's also the end of of the first season of the History of India podcast. It's a sad moment. I've really enjoyed it, starting out with the Mugden kings and going all the way through the Mauryans and the Great Ashoka right till the end. I hope you've enjoyed it too. But fear not, the season's not quite over yet. There are going to be a bunch of special episodes on topics away from the main narrative. Topics like the history of South India, caste and religion during this period and hopefully going to be getting some friends to help with that too. They're going to be released about every other week or so and that's simply because I've got another job. Uh, It's a job I really love. It's a job that pays and uh, it's a job that during university term time takes pretty much all of my time. But fear not for a second reason, and that is that the History of India podcast will be back with a new season carrying on from where we stopped, with the Shunga dynasty. And that's going to be around Christmas. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcasts, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snehal Situ Memorial Fund. Details are on the website, which is historyofindiapodcast.com. Take care. See you soon.